Hey, how's it going? It has been a heck of a morning. Oh, that no. That is all I can say. <laughs> What's going uh, on? Yeah, uh, we here in Missouri get icing as a thing, and so it has iced this morning. So the entire world is just one giant sheet of ice, which means everybody's home together on this lovely morning. And then I was getting ready to record this podcast with you, and my power cord exploded as I plugged it in. Oh. And so uh, it, it, it has been a catastrophe after catastrophe sort of morning. And I am just glad to get to a task on my task list that I can accomplish, which is talking to you and recording a podcast. Okay. I <laughs> yeah, right. Um, yes. Wow. What a morning. Yeah, but uh, how are you doing? You know, in some ways similar, though I have not had exploding battery chargers. We also, we've had a ton of ice in our area the last week, and it has led to all sorts of trees falling down and all sorts of power outages and so many like falls and broken limbs and different things. So at the 911 Center, our top four busiest days of all time statistically, have happened mm -hmm. all in the last week. Top four wow. busiest days ever have all been in the last week. It's so crazy. So incredible. it is. And so I preached yesterday and that was good, but man, all the stuff we've been dealing with, with the weather, I did not get a chance to go through my sermon as often as I'd like. And so I just felt really cold. I actually felt really nervous about preaching because I knew I was underprepared. My delivery did not come out quite the way I wanted. I mean, it was fine. It wasn't a disaster of a sermon, but I just, I don't know. I've, ever since then, I've been like, man, that could have gone so much better. I have to say, so I listened to it. You sent me the link last night and I listened to it while I was tooling around doing some errands and I really enjoyed it. I could see that it was not your best sermon you've ever preached, though it had some delivery moments that I thought were excellent. But overall, where you took it, because it was based on our Psalm 91 conversation, I thought was fascinating. I really thought it was interesting. And if you caught our Psalm 91 conversation, you might find it interesting to see the final product of that conversation. So I'd encourage any of our listeners to check it out. I think it was worth it. Yeah. Well, I have gone back and I've I put a link to the sermon in the show notes for that Psalm 91 sermon prep episode. But I will also put a link to that uh, in the description of this episode. And hey, if you want to check it out, feel free. Yeah, it was super good. All right. Well, what's on your mind for this episode? You know, I want to talk about a phrase that we use all the time and that I don't know that we know what we mean. And okay. that phrase is, right? Inconceivable. This is my inconceivable. <laughs> we'll make sure that a link to that is also in the description. But, um, you know, one of my greatest passions in discipleship and church life is to help us as followers of Jesus, as what was the phrase we came up with? 
followers of the, of the Jesus way. way. No, uh, follower. No, not followers. Participants, uh, apprentices. Boy, if you listened to our last episode or two ago about this, let us know what we said because we would love to find out. Um, <laughs> but, um, but you know, as Christians, we use spiritual words all the time, and. One of the greatest discipleship opportunities I think we have is to pause and ask ourselves, what does that word actually mean? And so the phrase that is on my mind today that we use all the time is the word of God. Mm. So as someone who preached literally yesterday, tell me what does the phrase the word of God typically mean in your mind? Let's just start there. Yeah, so we have said so many times on this podcast that I come from a Baptist tradition, and in the Baptist tradition, the Word of God, and, and I think in a lot of evangelical traditions, not just Baptist, the Word of God is just synonymous with the Bible. When you say the Word of God, you're talking about the Bible, Genesis to maps, and that's it. That's the Word of God. But I have actually been really intrigued, at least since our Summer in the Psalms series last year when we read Psalm 119. And I felt like at mm. times Psalm 119 was talking about the Word of God as the Bible. And at other times I felt like, no, this can't mean the Bible. This has to mean literally God speaking in some fashion, maybe through the Bible, but he can speak in a lot of different ways. And so I did feel like it could mean something more than that. And I actually would love, do you mind, can I pull up a passage in 1 Peter that I think exemplifies the tension here. Please do. And then I want to throw more gas on the fire before we start finding solutions. All right. And if people didn't think we were heretics before? <laughs> <laughs> so, all right. Well, okay. So this is, this is 1 Peter 1, starting in verse 23. And it says, mm -hmm. for you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. For, and then he quotes Isaiah, all peoples are like grass and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the mm -hmm. word that was preached to you. What is that? Yeah. Is that the Bible? Or is that just literally God's revelation in whatever form it comes in? Well, okay. And here's where I want to add more gas to the fire. So we had a brief prep conversation to make sure we were at least thinking in the same general direction about what we wanted to talk about about this yeah. several hours ago. And in our dialogue then, we missed a giant and glaringly important use of the phrase, the word of God. Did you catch this in your prep between then and now? Boy, that's a loaded question. Um, I'm just going to nope. say no. Okay. The most central reference to the word of God, presumably in the Bible, is Jesus, right? John Jesus 1, as, 1, right, as the Logos, the word of right? God. Yeah. Yeah. And it's fascinating to me, and I, I I think it says something, though I don't know what, A, that whatever the word of God is, a group of people, the Jews, who had thousands of years of preparation, John 
used this analogy to bridge the gap between Jewish background and Gentile background as something that he presumably thought everybody could get on board with to understand what Jesus was. Great. Fascinating to me that that's how John describes Jesus, the Word of God. It is equally fascinating to me in a religion that centers around Jesus when we initially threw it around the ideas about the Word of God that we didn't think to mention that. But in our defense, and actually I really do mean this, not to defend ourselves, but to really expand the conversation. In our defense, John refers to Jesus as the Word, right? It's never the Word of God. And so when we look at phrases like the Word of God, like we have in First Peter and elsewhere, or the Word of the Lord, this it doesn't ever appear to be speaking directly of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And so when we're asking the question, what does the Word of God mean when it's used in Scripture, I don't know that most people would actually say, well, it means Jesus. Yeah, no, I think that's fair. So what's our question that we're asking here? I would like to know, is the phrase, the Word of God, synonymous with Scripture? Because I think there are a lot of times that the Bible, like going back to this First Peter text, it is saying, according to the Word of God. And so, does that mean Scripture, or does that mean God speaking in some other way? And I think why this is important is we can really edge toward worshiping the Bible because we have so Mm -hmm. equated the idea that the Bible is the Word of God, the Word of God is the Bible, that we somehow, I think you said in our prep conversation, make the Bible the fourth person of the Trinity. And that's not okay. We can't do that. And so I think that's one problem when we don't get these things clarified. And I think the other problem is we fail to look for God to speak in other ways because we fail to remember that the Word of God is literally the way God chooses to speak. And sometimes that's through the Bible, and sometimes it's outside of the Bible, and we have to look for God to speak. Well, and can I, I asked you a question that I've been wrestling with earlier, and that question I'm wrestling with is, how am I prone to make the Bible the fourth member of the Trinity? Can I give you a concrete example of what I think that can look like in my life? Oh, yeah, that would be great. So I want to distinguish between the Bible that is the written word of God, the original manuscript, not the English translation or whatever like that. But if I think the very words that are printed on the page are by default the word of God, just by themselves automatically, it is easy for me to treat the Bible like if I just get the words in my head, I'm all set. Mm. And I don't mean a person. I genuinely mean I have done this probably in the last week where I have read the Bible for my, you know, I call it my time with God, right? I have read the Bible, but I have not engaged my full mind, heart, and soul with it as I read. I just let the words pass across my eyes and slap into my brain somehow Almost as if there is something, either like I get karma for it, or like I think there's some sort of magical formula or something. Whereas if I think 
I can engage the Word of God in the Bible rather than just assuming that it is the Bible, I am forced to be looking for the Word of God and hauling myself into a place of engagement rather than just passive reading. Well, yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple words you used in particular that really stand out to me. One is this idea of magical, or I would say maybe mystical, or even some superstition Mm. around it. Um, Mm -hmm. And then another word you used was engagement. And I think it's that engagement piece that sometimes we can miss if we have like this magical thinking. And I have some illustrations of magical thinking as well. It's interesting to me, I was in a group of people a couple weeks ago where we were studying the Bible. And we were talking about how Jesus said, you're going to do even greater works than I am when I go to the Father. And like, what does that mean? And somebody was like, well, what does it mean in the Greek? Like, what does greater mean? Or what's the Greek word for works here? And I, you know. Do bigger stuff. That's what it means. It means do bigger stuff. Well, it just means greater. Like, so greater and works are just as flexible of words in Greek as they are in English. There's nothing magical about them. There's nothing theological about these words. Just like there's nothing theological about the words greater or works in English, nor is there in Greek. And so I think sometimes we get this magical thinking, even like, especially when we look at, oh, well, what does the original language say? Or another example of maybe magical thinking when it comes to the Bible is, okay, God, I don't know what to do in life. I'll just open the Bible to a random passage and you're going to speak to me. And maybe, but I also feel like that's a little bit of magical thinking. Whereas when we talk about engagement, right? And we talk about, okay, God, speak to me through this word. Use your Holy Spirit to to take these words and to make them make sense to me. The word of God speaking, that is engagement. And I think that's a healthier place to be than some of this magical thinking. Yeah, I totally agree. I was looking at the thinking of Karl Barth on this. Okay. Now you really have lost your salvation. Right. I know. Uh, But so Barth is either a hero of the faith or a heathen, depending on how conservative of an evangelical you are. But I find it fascinating that the fruit of his life is that he was willing to take a stand against Hitler and Nazism And that says one, at least one good thing about him. He was one of the Christians who said, let's not do that. Right. And I think there's way more stuff that's redeemable about Karl Barth. He's got some brilliant theology. Uh, Absolutely. I, I love a lot of what he has to say. Yeah, exactly. And he is perhaps one of the greatest thinkers of the 20th century. But I vaguely remembered Barth having some thoughts about the Word of God. So I was looking it up in preparation for this conversation, and any of our listeners who know this information better than I certainly can correct me, but what I found in multiple different places was that Bart understood the Word of God to be manifest in three different ways, preaching, scripture, and Jesus. And The analogy I heard somebody use that I thought was fascinating, do you remember 
how you can have potential energy and kinetic energy. Do you remember this idea from physics? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So a block of wood has potential energy. If I push it off the shelf, it has kinetic energy. Am I saying that right? Yep. All right. So it seems like what Bart was saying is that the Bible has potential word of God that can be actualized with human engagement. It becomes the word of God or is realized as or actualized as the word of God when a person comes to it. And I'm not offering that up as a right answer, but as an interesting potential hypothesis. The other way he speaks of scripture is witness. The true word of God, by which he means revelation that is God-given in any way, shape, or form, is ultimately realized in Jesus, and scripture is witness to that ultimate revelation. I'm curious if either of those thoughts ring true or resonate with you. The second one more than the first. The idea that Jesus is the ultimate revelation of the Word of God, and that the Bible is a witness to that revelation, I think makes a lot of sense. But the idea of the Word of God being the potential Word of God while it sits on the page— and only becoming the Word of God with human engagement puts a lot of emphasis on the human that I don't like. I mean, at the end of the day, we are talking about God speaking. And so I would refine that a little bit. And maybe this is a little bit more of what Bart is saying. I haven't read him enough to know. But I would refine that a little bit and say it remains the potential Word of God until the Holy Spirit helps to elucidate it, uh, explain it, apply it to the person. I think the Holy Spirit, I think God, watched over the process of the writing and formation of the Bible as his word. But another step is needed for us to receive it as his word, and that is the Holy Spirit taking those written words and applying it to our lives. Again, God needs to speak. And I think that puts a little bit more emphasis where it belongs in the God-oriented, the God-action side of things. I do like that. And the thing I like about it is if you go to some printing company and they've printed 10,000 copies of the Bible, does that mean you have 10,000 copies of the Word of God as we're talking about it? I don't think so. I think the Word of God, yes, is this self-revelation of God that is always fundamentally relational. It has to do with being, not truth, in the apersonal sense. It's not propositional truth. It is personal truth. Yes. Let me back up even a little bit more. It is not merely propositional truth. It is propositional truth, but it is propositional truth in the context of relational truth. And therefore, the person of God must be present for the word of God to be present. Ooh, say that again. I think that's key. Yeah, the person of God must be present for the word of God to be present. Maybe that's something we forget in our digital age when words can be 
separated from the speaker so easily. But I don't think that that's natural. I think that words are inherently tied to a speaker, meaning a person. Yes. And I think sometimes we elevate the Bible as the Word of God, and we make it synonymous with the Word of God, such that we do. We elevate it to the fourth member of the Trinity, rather than looking for the person to be speaking. And yes, these are the words of God, but I like what you said. The person of God needs to be present in order for these to be the Word of God. And so I think that is helpful in keeping us from divinizing the Bible. Yeah, and I think that that is the Bible the Word of God or not. Maybe that's the wrong question. I'm Not that we were exactly asking that, because we, we certainly have an answer to that. But because you, your original question was, is the Word of God identical with Scripture, right? Yeah, more or less, yeah. Something like that. And I think... Yes and no. The same way a soundbite is still an accurate recording of a person's words, but you might be missing everything even if you've got the words right. Yeah. You you need to know the person, and you need to be in relationship with the person to understand what they're saying. To experience it even as words in general. Well— And I think, you know, what Karl Barth was trying to get at is words on a page are just words on a page. This is not the God behind the words. And I think that's particularly important to keep in mind as we come to a verse like Hebrews 4.12, right? A lot of people memorize this in their Sunday schools, and they apply it directly to the Bible. But keep that distinction in mind as we read, for the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. That sounds like an animate, conscious being, not Mm. words on a page. Yeah, that's exactly it. And so I have to admit That if I'm being super honest with myself, it's the relationality piece that you were just talking about, and this idea that the person has to be present in order for the words to be present, that speaks of a whole new layer. Now, it's not just, I don't know, I guess maybe it's, it's not as safe anymore. Now it's not just me trying to understand some words on a page, and maybe I ask for the Holy Spirit's guidance, but at the end, I really just believe it's me trying to figure this out. Now I have to engage with a person, and that relationality and that vulnerability and that trust and that uncertainty of where it's going to go is present. And to be quite honest, it's a lot safer just to think, oh, if this is the Word of God, all I have to do is study the Word of God. And you can almost shut out the relational piece because, well, well, I don't know. I was engaging with the Word of God. What more do you want? Uh, No, I think you're exactly right. I think there is something that allows us to be in control if we treat the Word of God like a text or a book. Yeah. But the moment the Word of God is an 
expression of the person of God, and the two are intimately linked, we're just out of control. And I, I don't mean that like a car that's swerving in crazy ways, but I mean, we are no longer the one in control. We don't know where this journey is going to go. It's not formulaic, so we can't be confident what the next step or next steps are. Even we can't be bossy to other people because their journey and my journey might look different. Yeah. There's just a lot less control. I love that you keep using this word control. That is so it. If the Bible is the word of God, but it's non-dynamic anymore because we're not depending upon a relationship. We're just we're dependent upon our brain engaging with the written word. Then it does feel like we have a lot more control than if we're dealing with a person, something that is dynamic, something that is unpredictable, something that has movement and volition and its own agenda. Boy, yeah. I, that's that changes the posture with which I approach the word. Yeah, hundred percent. Well, and it, can I take a minute and tie this conversation to our conversation about what it means to follow Jesus? Oh, yeah, that'd be great. You know, as you were saying all of that, one of the things I started thinking about, we grew up asking ourselves a lot of times, who are the insiders and who are the outsiders, and for conservatives, ultimately the answer was if you believe the right things, you're an insider. If you're orthodox, not meaning like Greek orthodox or something, but if you're, if you have the right set of beliefs, you're on the inside, right? That's kind of yeah. what we were thinking. 100%. And some of my more mainline or liberal friends often will push back on that and say, you can believe whatever you want. But if you aren't actually doing the right things, what does it matter? And so they've often pushed back on us and suggested there needs to be a sense not just of orthodoxy, that is to say, right belief, but there needs to be a sense of orthopraxy, right action. Does yeah. that make sense so far? Are you with me? I am. I'm intrigued to hear what comes next. Okay. So this is where on some level, and I'm often uncomfortable with those being the insider-outsider markers. And yet I feel forced to acknowledge, sometimes people will say, well, maybe there is no inside and outside. Nope, there definitely is. And it makes me wonder if there is a third term. And the third term I would offer is ortho-relationality, meaning it's not that you believe the right thing. It's not that you do the right thing. It's that you're in the right relationship with the right person. Hmm. And when I say it that way, it brings me back to a very important Old Testament word, the word righteousness, which functionally means being in the right relationship with the right person, right? It, that's so funny that you put it that way because you're absolutely right. That is the definition, the Old Testament definition of righteousness, but I think in our modern times, we have taken the word righteousness to mean right practice. Like, are you doing mm -hmm. the right things? And so I don't know that the word righteousness is going to convey the right information today. I like this idea of ortho-relationality, not that that flows off the tongue, but... <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, I think our our, our I was going to say chronic listeners, <laughs> but I think our longtime listeners will be like, oh my gosh, you guys are just out of big words. You're just inventing them on your own. But anyway. Um, yeah, no, it's, I think I backdoored my way into a very original concept that has only been known since David himself was alive. <laughs> right. Yes. It's just that the concept was so fouled up in my head that I needed to come up with it in a different way in order to look back and be like, oh, that's what that means. Righteousness means orthorelationality. I'm in the right relationship here and I'm doing it the right way. Yeah. And so as we come back to this definition of what is the Word of God, mm -hmm. I think however you define it, it has to include that element of relationality, that element of a divine personhood that is actively engaged in conveying the message. And it's not that the Bible is less than that, but it is to say that the dynamism, the movement, the volition that comes with having an active agent behind the word means that it's much more dynamic than printed words on a page. Yeah, because there's a real person behind them. Yeah, exactly. And that doesn't mean we can sort of magically make them mean whatever we want them to mean. It just means there's a real person behind them. And so they are part of a communication process, a communication experience. Yeah. Well, I would love to just turn to the audience and ask, okay, could you help us with a different word other than orthorelationality? I think this is the right concept. I just don't know that we found the right term. But in, in all seriousness, I would love to hear from the audience to find what their relationship with the Bible is or has been and how they have experienced the living, breathing God behind the Bible and behind the Word of God. Mm. I would love to hear those stories to spark my own imagination and my own propensity toward relationship. Yeah, I would love to hear that. I'm super excited to see what people share. But, you know, I'm also curious, what else have you, Josh, from Oregon been thinking about? Yeah, so I told you one of the books I wanted to read this year was Preston Sprinkle's book, Fight, on Christian nonviolence. He doesn't like the term pacifism because he thinks it uh, implies too much passivity. And so he, Christian nonviolence is really what he's arguing for. And he's taking a scriptural approach to finding out what does the Bible really have to say about war, violence, all of these things. And so far, the book has been really, really fascinating, and I probably have a couple of thoughts from it. But the part I want to key in on today has really just captured my imagination. And uh, it mm. was it was actually by the guy who wrote the foreword. The foreword was written by Shane Claiborne. And he put in a little factoid. It was almost a throwaway line that was startling. And Rather than quote his line directly, I've actually gone back and updated his statistic because this was 12 years ago or so that he wrote this introduction. So here's the updated oh, version. We in this country spend $27,800 per second on war. Oh. And of course, by which he means all military spending some could argue not everything the military does was war-related. So, okay, fair. But still, 
That is a staggering number. $27,800 every second. It means that in the last minute that I have been speaking, we have spent over $1.6 billion on war. Wow. And regardless of whether you fall into Christian nonviolence or not, that is a staggering and sobering number. Ooh, that's just painful to think about. I know. I can't imagine spending that amount of money on anything. It just boggles my mind. So, hey, can you do something for me about that? Yeah, what do you got? Can you put in the liner notes wherever you got that statistic? Because some of our friends out there are going to be curious. And we have some very intelligent listeners who are going to be like, I don't know about that. And I know that you got that number intelligently. And so I would just love for you to cite it in the liner notes. It's it's not actually that hard. I just Googled what is the defense budget for the most current year that we had statistics for, and that was 2022. So what was the defense okay. budget for 2022? And it was like, I don't know. A bazillion dollars. Yeah. I took that and I divided it by the number of seconds in a year. That's it. There you have it. Nice. Okay. Thank you. Because that's, you know, we use the word staggering and I think we overuse it a little bit, but that is staggering. Like, I feel like I should have something to say about that and I do not. That's how I felt for a week. I'm not proposing any policy decisions. I'm not proposing any particular viewpoint or anything. I'm just saying that's a whole lot of money. And if if I could just sit down in, in my own little quiet chamber, is that how I would spend my money? Phew. That's it. That's all I've been thinking about. Beyond that, uh, which is edging a little toward the political, uh, what are you thinking about? Well, you know, going from the systemic to the personal here. I just want to throw out a great app that I've really been enjoying and I think is super helpful. As a pastor, one of the resources I used over and over again, both with other people and with myself, is this simple diagram called the feelings wheel that helps you identify how you feel. For sure. There is a phenomenal app version of this called How We Feel. It was developed by this combination of people who are some experts on web development from Pinterest and some experts on emotions from like Yale or someplace. And the intersection of those two things comes up with an app that is incredibly helpful for paying attention to how we feel. And one of the realizations I've had over the last couple of weeks, even as a fairly intelligent, fairly self-aware person, is that I still frequently don't know what I feel. Mm. And this has been a great tool for paying attention to that and practicing a little bit more self-awareness. That sounds great. I was actually just thinking today, you know, there's nothing like going and pursuing a master's in counseling to start evaluating your own life and being like, hmm, how how effective am I in this area? And how well do I actually perform in that area? And so like lately, it's been the expression and the understanding of one's own emotion. And I'm like, huh, okay, so where am I on that scale? And how effective am I? And there's always room to grow. And so that app sounds like a lovely tool for that. It really is. And it, at least for those of us who are iPhone users, it syncs with 
Apple Health. Like it analyzes your feelings based on how much sleep you've been getting and how much movement you've had and how your exercise is going and time of day. And I am only a couple of days into it, but I'm excited to use it long enough to get some of the data that it's going to offer, which is just very cool. Wow, that does sound cool. Not cool enough for me to go sell my soul to the devil and get an iPhone, but it does sound cool. That's okay. I I respect that about you. (laughs) All right. Are you ready for everybody's favorite part of On the Phone with Josh? As a matter of fact, I want to tell all of those of you who skipped the entire episode just to get to this part, go back, listen. It was great. (laughs) But are you ready for which Josh? I am ready. Lay it on me. All right. Today's Witch Josh is Witch Josh had to write a verse 50 times as punishment for throwing food at his best friend. (laughs) Oh, this is great. This takes me way back. I'm so glad this came up. This is me, uh, Josh from Oregon. I went to a Christian school, K through eight, and my best friend, shout out to Ben, if you're listening, we met in fourth grade. And so this must have been fourth or probably fifth grade. We were good friends by this point, but he could get under my skin and I could get under his. We were in the lunchroom and I don't know, something happened. He said something, did something that irritated me, whatever. And so I threw food at him. He threw food at me. And we just, I don't know, probably a couple of exchanges before the lunch monitor like headed over and was like, oh, no, you don't, boys. And uh, took us to the principal's office. Uh, It was not our first trip to the principal's office for a variety of reasons. And so the principal looked at us and said, okay, you need to write down this verse 50 times and you need to write it down 75 times. Ben actually had to write it 75 times. He'd been in trouble more recently than (laughs) I had. Uh, Yeah. It was all about like getting along or I don't know. You'd think I'd remember it, but I don't. It's some New Testament passage that Paul wrote to the church about, hey, Guys, come on. Seriously, get along. That's awesome. Well, that was clearly effective because you never got in a fight with Ben again after that point. So that's exciting. No, I just never wasted food on the guy. Like, man, that's that's valuable stuff. That's awesome. I have to be honest. I've never been in a food fight. So you have been in an official, unauthorized food fight. Congratulations. Yeah, it's, uh, it's my claim to being a rebel right there. There it is. Well, congratulations. You are more of a rebel than me. <laughs> All right. Well, it's a high bar. Assuming I can mend my rebellious ways, shall we talk again next week? Absolutely. I can't wait. I'll talk to you then. All right. Have a good one. All right. Bye. Bye.